Let's turn together to Psalm 139. We're wrapping the summer up this weekend, and our summer in the Psalms series will be wrapping up this morning as well. Next week, the plan is to start a series on the Holy Spirit. Obviously, if the Holy Spirit moves in a different direction, I've got a few things like percolating in my heart, but the plan is to start a series on the Holy Spirit next week. But I wanted to end, I wanted to close our time in the Psalms with this psalm. This is one of the most intimate and one of the most personal psalms of all. Written by David, this is a prayer from beginning to end. It is filled with beautiful truths and insights about who God is and about who we are and who God is to us. This is a psalm that we, any one of us, can pray and receive very personally. Last week I said that our stories, our lives are stories, and we can't really know the story until we know the end. Well, the Bible also tells us that our worth, our value as human beings, and our identity is also rooted in God. Our story is rooted in God, our Identity and our worth are also rooted in God. Our value primarily comes because God created us in his image. We are image bearers of the Lord. That's why our lives are sacred. That's why murder is such a horrible thing, because it is disfiguring, it is murdering the image of God. Now, sin has marred and distorted the image of God in us, but it has not destroyed the image. We are still image bearers of God. So our lives are valuable because of who we are, not because of what we do, not because you do this or you accomplish that or you, you look this way or you, you whatever. Our lives are valuable intrinsically because we were created in the image of God. That's our worth. Our identity is also rooted in God. In fact, the gospel of Jesus transforms our identity from children of Satan to beloved sons and daughters of God. From once we were not a people to now we are the people of God. The final goal of the gospel is not to get us to heaven. That's a beautiful goal. But that's not the final goal. The final goal of the gospel, Romans 8, 29 says, is for God to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. The Lord is going to circle back and perfect the image of God in us, but now in an incredibly personal way and an incredibly God-centered way as we are conformed into the image of the Son of Man who is the Son of God. Praise God for that. The gospel speaks so deeply to our value and to our identity. And Psalm 139 is a very personal psalm that says some very personal things about God and about us. And so um, what I want to do with this psalm and with the points that I want to bring is I, I want this psalm to land on our hearts personally. I want this psalm to land on your heart personally and my heart personally. 
To that end, I am going to share what this psalm says to you. Normally in a sermon, I don't like to do that. I don't like to preach, you need to do this. God says you should do that. Normally I like to preach, God says we should do this. We need to hear this. But I want this psalm to land very personally on you. 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 And I include me in the you. Because this draws us, those who have placed their trust in Christ, this draws us into an incredibly intimate relationship with God and speaks incredibly, wonderfully of our value and our identity. And, and if you aren't a Christian, this is the intimate relationship that God invites you into. But that relationship begins, the first step to that relationship is trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I pray if you have not yet received Christ, that even, even during this time in His Word, that God will speak to your heart and draw you closely to Christ and trusting in Christ. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to begin with the first six verses of this psalm. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will will bring us into a very personal, intimate place. We want to be in your holy presence individually right now, Lord. We want to come into your presence individually. Uh, we want to come to the altar. We want to relate with you. We want to hear from you. And Lord, we also want our hearts to be encouraged and strengthened in you. So Lord, right now we pray that you will speak to us on a deep level, on a personal level. Let us forget the person next to us and let us focus on you and what you say to us and about us. And we give you all the glory for that, Jesus. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 139. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. I want to share four points as we work through this psalm. The first point from these verses is this. God knows you, and he loves you. And this speaks of God's omniscience as well. So there's kind of a personal point, and there's a theological point. God knows you and loves you, and we learn of God's omniscience. Do you ever wonder in your heart of hearts if God really cares about you? I mean, God is running the universe. God is over all. Does he really have the time or inclination to know you? To care about you? To love you personally? The other day I was listening to the podcast Office Ladies. 
where Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey dissect episodes of The Office, and now you know something about me. I enjoy that podcast, and you can judge me if you want. But as they ended the broadcast, they thanked the listeners for tuning in, and then one of them said, we love you. And I started thinking, can you actually love a nameless, faceless group of people that you don't know? Can you love people you do not know? Tens of thousands of people you've never met. You don't know if they exist individually. Can you say, I love you? I, I don't think you can. I think you can love the fact that they're listening. I think you can appreciate their loyalty as a fan. I think we can love groups of people in a general sense, but to love someone personally takes knowing them personally. Our desire to be loved is integrated with our desire to be known. We know in our hearts that if someone loves our image, the image we portray, but they don't really know us, we know in our hearts that they may love the image, but they don't, they don't know the real us, so they don't love the real us. We wonder if they really knew us, would they love us? I think that's a part of the human condition, but, but those who are particularly afraid of opening the drapes and letting people in on their lives live in constant fear and constant image. And I've got to believe a big part of that is because they fear if they open the drapes, if people really saw who they were, they would not like them or love them. And we can wonder that about God. But David writes that the Lord has searched him and known him. Notice he didn't give him uh, uh, permission for that. The Lord has searched him. The Lord has known him. David is talking about God's omniscience. God knows everything. He knows everything. But David realizes God's omniscience gets very personal. He knows everything you do. He knows the smallest things. He's not just cluing into your life when something major happens. He knows the very smallest things. If driving here this morning, you drove one mile over the speed limit, God knows. He knows everything that we do. Nothing escapes his notice. He discerns our thoughts from afar. I don't even know he's know what I'm thinking from up close. But God discerns our thoughts from afar. God sees not only what we're thinking, he sees how we got to the thinking we're doing today. He sees when I was five years old, this experience happened, and it cut a line in the way I think, the way I interpret life, the way the stream of thought I have. He sees how that connection five years old, has led to a stream of thinking to this very day. 
He sees where our thoughts came from and where they're going. And he sees what we're thinking, not just today, but where that thought will lead tomorrow and five years from now and 20 years from now. God sees our thoughts in both and all directions at all times. God knows our motives. He knows the motives under the motives. He knows our frustrations. He knows our fears. He knows our irritations. He knows our hopes, our dreams, our vulnerabilities, our strengths. There's nothing about you God doesn't know. Nothing about me that God doesn't know. God knows what you're going to say before you say it. That'd be actually a good thing. Sometimes I say things before I even know what I'm going to say. But not in the same way God knows. You know, it's like, I should have thought a little more about that. But God knows what's on your tongue before it's on your tongue. And then here's a wonderful thing for the child of God. Our lives are hemmed in on both sides by God's providence. Absolutely nothing comes into our lives by accident. Nothing happens by random. I don't care what it is. God hems us in. For the child of God, we can know that God's good providence has hemmed us in on this side, what's happened before, what's happened in our past, and he hems us in on this side, what's going to happen in our future, and everything is hemmed in, guided, protected by God's good providence. Whatever happens in our lives, oh, we can look for God's good hand in it. We can trust in his providence. What all this means is when God says, I love you, this is not a podcast, I love you. This is a personal, I love you. I know everything about you, and I love you. Jesus also emphasized how personal the Father is in his love for us when he tells us that the Father numbers the hairs on our head. He loves us intimately. So with all this knowledge about us, if God were to take all the knowledge he has of us and all the sin we commit and omit and think about, if God were to keep a ledger against us, we'd be in really big trouble. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should keep a ledger, who could stand? Who could stand? None of us could stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. Praise God. Amen? Praise God. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God forgives us so that we might fear him. Not the kind of fear that runs from him, but the kind of fear of reverence that runs to him. He forgives Jesus on the cross. He's cleansed the ledger by his blood, taken that ledger with all our sins on it, and he's cleansed the ledger completely clean and offered forgiveness to all those who believe in Jesus. What this point says is God doesn't say, I love you to a nameless, faceless group of people he doesn't really know. God says, I know you inside and out. Everything you are, were, and will be, and I love you. Enough to give my son to die on the cross for you. Oh, that God would demonstrate his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. That's love. The second point we see in this, as we move along this psalm, is that God pursues us. He pursues you. I want to keep this landing on your heart personally. God pursues you wherever you go. And theologically, this speaks of God's omnipresence. Verse 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Many Bible scholars look at this passage and wonder, why is David saying, where can I hide from you? Where can I run from you? And the most likely reason is as David lays out how much God knows about him, he's aware of how exposed he is to God's scrutiny. The natural reaction is the fear of being known. See, we all want to be known, right? We all want to be known. And we all want to be loved for who we are. But we don't want anybody to know us totally, do we? We don't want every closet wide open, do we? Do we want light shining? We, we don't want brilliant light shining upon us that shows everything about us. Even when we're secure and know we're loved, we don't want everything known. We don't want everything seen. We don't want scrutiny that looks right through us. And yet that's what God does. With that in mind, I think David asked the question, where can I hide? Where can I, can I, can I have some portion of my life that's hidden? Can I go somewhere to hide this thing from God? <clears throat> Where could I go to escape God's scrutiny? Where could I go to flee from the Spirit of God? And the answer is nowhere. Nowhere. David says, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. If I were to go to the lowest depths of the sea... He would be there. If I were to climb the highest mountain, he would be there. If I were to charter a spacecraft that could fly me to Pluto, when I got to Pluto, God would be there. There is nowhere we can go. There's nothing we can do to hide from his scrutiny. There's no darkness that God doesn't see right through. There's no hidden basement, no hidden closet, no hidden chamber of our heart that God doesn't see right in it and see everything. There's nowhere to hide from God. 
That's why judgment day is going to be so terrifying to those who don't have the forgiveness of Christ, because God's going to be completely fair. He's going to be very merciful, but they will stand exposed completely to the light of God, nothing hidden, and that will be terrifying. The Bible says in Revelation that when the lamb comes back, people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of God. But guess what? Underneath a ton of mountain, God's spirit is there. There is nowhere to hide from God. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. But God's omnipresence isn't David's main point in these verses. What hits David is that God will pursue him no matter where he goes. That's the thrust of these passages. God will pursue me wherever I go. If I hide from you here, you are there. If I run from you there, you are there. If I hide in the darkness, you see me. God loves us with a pursuing love. Jesus loves us with a pursuing love. Jesus didn't come to be pursued. He came to pursue. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost, to pursue them. He pursues you. And God pursued us right to the cross. So why would God pursue you or me? Why would God pursue us? Why would God even care? He runs the universe. Angels adore him. He's perfect in all these ways. We are so small. Our lives so insignificant. Why would God even notice us, much less pursue us? And here's where we find God's very personal and very intimate care for each of us, because each person is precious to God. The third point is this, God made you with love. God, our creator. <clears throat> Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. David is talking about his, his conception and development in the womb. God was knitting him together. And he says, God, you did a good job. This isn't boasting on David's part. God knit you together with love and care. Who you are is who God created you to be. He created you. He knit you together in the womb. He was putting you together. When God is knitting a little embryo in the womb, he is knitting an eternal soul, a forever person who is precious to him. And each life, each person made in his image, and each person precious in his sight. <clears throat> Abortion is a controversial topic today. 
has been for quite some time. <clears throat> and I think a lot of that controversy revolves around when does life begin? When does life begin? Two days ago, President Biden reversed earlier statements he made and said that he doesn't believe necessarily anymore that life begins at conception. These verses that we just read tell us when God believes life begins. It begins at conception. One of the arguments for abortion is that the fetus is part of the woman's body. Many protesting the Supreme Court's recent Texas ruling are declaring our body, our choice. But the question is, is the fetus the woman's body? Is the fetus the woman's body? Science says it's not. Every cell in a woman's body, same with a man, every cell in a woman's body shares the same genetic code. In other words, a woman's body is made up of trillions of cells, about 30 trillion cells. Every single one of those cells is made up of the exact same genetic code. But a fetus, an embryo, at the moment of conception, has a completely distinct genetic code. Distinct from its mother's. Completely different. At the moment of conception, that fetus has a lifetime of information, a genetic code that has a lifetime of information that will inform all of its development through its lifetime. At that moment. And it's a completely different genetic code than the mother. So is it the woman's body if it has a completely different genetic code? That genetic blueprint will inform and account for every detail of its development, including the child's gender, its eye color, its hair color, its height, and much, much more. The fetus is in the mother, but it's not the, fe the woman's body. The fetus has a completely different genetic code, often has a completely different blood type, and half the time has a different gender. From those earliest moments of conception, God is doing his work fashioning a unique and eternal human being, a person that God knows and God loves. God spoke to Jeremiah and said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Think about that. Before I formed you, before you existed, I knew you. And we may not be prophets like Jeremiah, but that is exactly true for our lives as well. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You are no accident and you are no mistake. And as they say, God don't make no junk. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Our worth isn't determined by what we do, how much we have, how many accomplishments we get. 
Our worth isn't measured by how many people like us or don't, how attractive we are or aren't, how successful we seem to be or not. Our worth is determined by who we are and by whose we are. We are made in the image of God, precious to God, and we belong to him. And when we trust in Christ as our Savior, we become children of God who belong to him and are precious to him. God made you with love. The last point I want to share from this is that God has a plan for your life. Verse 16 through 18, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Last week we talked about our lives being a story. And now we learn that God has written that story. Now, we go off the rails, we go off the tracks, but God has written that story. He has ordained our lives. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knew the bookend of our death before the bookend of our birth. God knows how many days he's allotted to us. God planned out your life and ordained your life before you even breathed your first breath of air. Now, this is a mystery because I know we have the ability. I know I have the ability to mess things up. I know I have the ability to, to really go off the rails and make bad choices and get off the trail. I do not underestimate my ability to mess things up, but I trust God's bigger ability to do the right in my life, to guide me, to guide you, to ordain your life in a good way. As we trust the Lord, God's ability to redeem even our mistakes is bigger than our mistakes. Now, please don't take that as permission to go out and try to sin it up to see exactly how much good God can bring of that, because that is not wise. But when we fall into bad choices, God can redeem those for good. And I've seen it time and time again. As we close this psalm, here's what we see. The center of the psalm isn't you, and it isn't me. The center of the psalm is God. The beauty of the cross isn't what it says about you or what it says about me. The beauty of the cross is what it says about God, about His love for us, about His pursuit of us. It says of the love of Christ, that passes understanding. Our identity, see, our identity is not, not attached to the great things we accomplish. In fact, the more we humble ourselves and see the greatness of God, the fuller our life becomes. The more we fill our thoughts with ourselves, the emptier our lives become. There's a saying, there's nothing emptier than a man who's full of himself. 
The center of this isn't us, it's God. And that should fill our hearts with joy. Because He loves us. God thinks about us. Now again, this is not, we don't want to take this psalm in a narcissistic direction and think, God's always thinking about me. But in a sense, he is. I think David is talking about the number of thoughts that God has about him and that they're beyond his counting. And again, that speaks more of God than of us. That God's thinking about you. God has thoughts about you. God cares about you. God loves you. Because that's who God is. I know I'm not worthy of his thoughts 24-7. But I thank God that he does think of me. And may you feel that same preciousness from God. God has plans for your life. So, I want to zip this psalm up, and David takes an unusual turn in the psalm as he starts talking about hating those who hate God and says, God, smite them, kill them. I remember years ago when we were on Long Island, there, we used to sing a song that at one point in it, it said, you know, break the teeth of the enemy. And, and it, it, it kind of like hit that, and we'd be like, break the teeth of the enemy. And I, I thought one day, if a visitor was sitting here, I wonder what they would think about that. They'd be like, Maybe I'm an enemy. <laughs> what is it about the Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms? It's like, God, smash heads, will you? Break their teeth. I hate them. Kill them. Smite them. Well, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, God used the enemies of Israel to represent the enemies of God. In the New Testament, God fills that picture out a little bit so that we know that our real enemies aren't people, they're demonic powers and principalities. So don't break the teeth of that person at work who's annoying you, okay? Uh, and say, I did that for God. Um, we are actually told to love our enemies and pray for them. But we still should hate the works of the devil. And we should hate the works of the devil in people, but not the people. But David, in the closing verse two verses, he comes back to his opening thoughts, but there is a significant difference. In verse 23, he says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Remember in verse one, David acknowledges, God, you have searched me and you've known me. God's already done that. But in his closing words, David asks God to search him and know him and know his heart through and through his anxious thoughts, any offensive ways in his interior or exterior life and lead him in the right way, in the way everlasting. God searches and he knows everyone through and through doesn't need our permission. Whether you invite him to or not, he's, he knows you, he searched you, he knows everything. But when we invite him, it doesn't change his knowledge of us, but it changes our heart's position to him. It changes our alignment. 
Instead of hiding from Him, we are inviting Him. Search me. Lord, show me. You know, there's, there's no harder ground than someone who thinks they're always right, who will not change, who will not hear. They, they assume God is, is good with everything in them, and they will not hear a rebuke from the Lord or others. They're stuck. And the way to get unstuck is say, Lord, search me and know me. Show me, honestly show me what's, what's, what's messed up in my thinking. What wicked ways are in my heart or my actions? What's going on here? And then lead me in the right way. It positions us to hear him. It positions us to say, I'm not going to cloak this sin. I'm going to invite his light. It positions our heart to humility. And God loves and exalts humility. So as we close, is that a prayer you're willing to pray? Search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Any offensive thing in me. Any anxious thought. And help me to give it to you, God. Are you tired of living your own way? Is there some way you've been hiding from a God, afraid of His light? Some closet you think you've... He, he doesn't see. Are you living afraid of being exposed for who you are? As we close this morning in a word of prayer, God sees it all anyway. And it's exhausting to live trying to hide from God. It's exhausting. As we come to Christ, we trust His death to forgive us of all of our sins. We trust His death on the cross to cleanse us and the blood to cleanse us. But it doesn't stop there. We trust His resurrection to give us power to live a new life. A resurrection life. A life in His Spirit. So let's come to God and, and just make your seat an altar to the Lord, a private altar. And as we pray, ask the Lord, search me and know me. Show me and lead me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know from the truth of your word, we know theologically that you are omniscient. You know everything. We have no surprises to unveil to you. But Lord, we want to come to you and say anyway, Lord, will you search me? Will you take inventory of my heart and my thoughts? Lord, will you Reveal to me any anxiety that's not trusting you or sin that is rebelling against you. And will you cleanse it of me and lead me in the everlasting way? Lord, what we know today that David didn't yet know is our sins were nailed to the cross. That the blood of your son, your precious son, 
cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that you have justified us. But we also know that, Lord, you have given us your spirit to help us live differently. To help us live in the power of the resurrection. Lord, to help us to be who we are. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit will empower us to be who we are and to image the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for that person who's hurting, who's got that thing they're so afraid to let go. Lord, they're afraid to let you in. But Lord, the truth is you want to let them out. You want to let them out of the prison of sin, out of the closet, out of the dark house with the drapes drawn, and into the light. And I pray that you will speak to their hearts a deep word of assurance that your way is best and they can trust you. Help them to open that door and say, Lord, come on in. Search me and know me. And I pray for anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the starting point of all this relationship. And I pray that, Lord, they will bow their knee and their heart before you and trust in Jesus and ask him to be their Savior and their Lord. And they will experience the, the beautiful forgiveness and mercies of God through Christ. Lord, it's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I pray you go with a deep sense of the love of God. Just marinating in your heart. God bless.